I, I just wanted to to really give some thought to not only how do you do EMS chaplaincy, but how do you think about it? And for the audience that I had in mind were EMS leaders who might be considering this, who might be looking for ways to support their people, but they aren't really clear what that might look like. Hello and welcome back to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence. And as we go into Lexapol's Wellness Week, I have invited a number of guests on to talk to something that's very dear and near to my heart, and that's of looking after our people. That's of pastoral care. That's of a place for the chaplaincy. And to help me have that discussion, I'd like to welcome uh, Gwen Powell, uh, Russ Myers, and Nikki Holm, all from Alina Healthcare Guys, or should I say chaplains, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So to introduce uh, our guests, I'll ask you guys to introduce yourself, uh, a little bit of a backstory, a bio, and we'll start with you, Russ. I started out as chaplain in the hospital setting in Alina, and about 16 years ago, the EMS chief uh, and I crossed paths at another function, and a month later, he called me and said, you know, we need to do more to support our people, and offered me a position working a day a week uh, with the paramedics, EMTs, and dispatchers. And and that's how it got started. And uh, it went from a, one day a week to half point five, and then to full-time and has consistently grown to now where there's three of us, each working about half-time. So I believe in shouting out and name-dropping. And so from your book, of course, that was 2006, and that person was our friend, friend of the show, Brian LaCroix. That's right. Yeah, Brian was, I don't know if he would uh, accept the uh, credit for being a visionary, but that's really how I experienced it. He just had this idea that we ought to be able to do more. Uh, He didn't have any, I asked him, I said, well, what exactly do you want me to do in this job? And he said, well, I don't know, we'll figure it out. Uh, So, so it's been, it's been a tremendous opportunity and and, uh, a lot, a lot of growth and opportunity. Great. Uh, in, in the words of another EMS visionary, you did the classic PDSA. You planned it, you did a little bit of it, you studied it, and you acted on it. So uh, that's that's the way to start stuff, I guess. Uh, Nikki? Yeah. So I've been doing um, kind of mental health chaplaincy since I finished my residency back in 2013. And so I was primarily providing spiritual care in an outpatient mental health setting where we um, – supported individuals, adults, and adolescents struggling with depression, anxiety, trauma, and eating disorders. And I was blessed to provide individual spiritual care, group spiritual care, and some health education. And in that process, we started to see first responders more and more in our programs, um, especially our intensive outpatient programs, firefighters, police officers, paramedics, unfortunately, at a time when their mental health was such that they needed to step away from their careers um, and really get intensive outpatient support. And when an email crossed my desk, um, actually from Russ, because he was in charge of a Minnesota statewide distribution list for chaplains, that they were seeking another EMS chaplain here at Alina, and the opportunity to provide more kind of proactive support to first responders versus reactive support for responders first responders came, um, I just jumped on it. So I, I applied and I've been with Alina Health now for three years and I'm really 
passionate about trying to do what we can to support our providers from the get-go instead of waiting until it gets to the point where they're no longer able to do what they feel like they've been called to do. And Gwen? So my entrance into this world kind of has two streams. I started out my career in psychology, and I have a master's in psychology, uh, but mostly I was research-based. And as I was doing that kind of work, I just felt like I wasn't doing the kind of human-to-human contact that I really craved in my work. Um, And then I sort of got this call to ministry uh, and went on that ministerial track, which led me to chaplaincy. And I did a lot of work uh, at the University of Minnesota Medical Center, now M Health Fairview, and um, ended up in behavioral health. So similar to Nikki's work with um, folks that were having a little bit of a struggle in their lives, I got to be on those inpatient units and walk along with the patients. But along the way, I ended up doing a lot of support with the staff because I noticed that they were being exposed to all of the same difficult stories that their patients were telling them over and over, as well as the reality of violence on the unit, uh, folks who are um, not able to be redirected effectively and needed to be restrained or, um, you know, were really struggling. And that was exposing the staff to a lot of trauma. And so they were having their own personal lives, their own family lives going on, and also repeatedly being exposed to difficult trauma at work. And that kind of highlighted for me the need to support the folks that are on the front lines of of this kind of medical healthcare work. Um, And so when I saw this posting from Russ, I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like what I've been doing with folks in the hospital so far. And I jumped on the opportunity to hop on over here to Alina and work with our first responders. That is uh, brilliant, and I I guess I have to also give my origin story as far as uh, my appreciation for the chaplaincy and that pastoral care. Uh, As many people, and I tell them all the time, I'm an old soldier. I spent the first 23 years of my life uh, in the British Army, and whilst you had the chain of command, you had the company commander, the commanding officer, and of course the dreaded sergeant major on one side of the equation, of course the person that I most loved seeing appearing on a dark and stormy night is was was the padre as we called them or the 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 chaplain you know normally with a pocket full of candy a kind word encouragement and really that lifter of morale and that person that let me and mine know that uh, you know it's going to be a brighter day tomorrow and things are you know things are are good in the world and i certainly appreciated that um my, I made sure that uh, my my soldiers, I, I was an army officer that uh, appreciated that. And on those dark days where we had to go and do something probably unsavory, the last voice they heard, you know, was was this. Well, we used to do this thing called the drumhead service, where prior to deploying onto something, then we would assemble, we would be thoughtful, we would reflect, we would encourage. And the padre and the chaplain played a major part in that. And I will be forever grateful for that for that role and so to have you guys on and to talk about doing probably a similar thing in public safety is 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 uplifting to me so thank you for for talking to me today i want to use as the handrail for our discussion actually the book that uh, russ wrote i think last year was published right russ uh because we care a handbook for chaplaincy in emergency medical services and in the show notes we're going to put the link uh but before i kind of get into it russ do a quick plug for the book, will you? You know, I, I, I've been in this business for thir- almost 30 years. And as I as I approached retirement, it, it occurred to me that because it was uh, an opportunity to create a position that hadn't existed before, um, I didn't want my successor to have to start all over again and figure this out from scratch. 
Um, so actually, I, I'd kind of been noodling around with with pieces of it, and I write a column for EMS One, so I knew I had the core of of something. Um, in the fall of 2020, when we knew that COVID wasn't going away, um, I told my wife, "I need a project, so it's time to write that book." Um, and so that's what the, the, what this is is a product of that. I, I just wanted to to really give some thought to not only how do you do EMS chaplaincy, but how do you think about it? And for the audience that I had in mind were EMS leaders who might be considering this, who might be looking for ways to support their people, but they aren't really clear what that might look like. Um, was also thinking of, of the chaplaincy community and people who might be interested in, in looking at public safety chaplaincy um, and how it's the same or different than, than chaplaincy in other venues. Um, and so that's the what you have is, is the end result of all that. Uh, really wanted to, in, in a lot of ways, it's a legacy project, but um, I, I felt quite strongly that, you know, this, this was a story that I, I wanted to tell. I think it is a legacy, uh, Russ. And I'm going to read, if I may, the back cover, because I think uh, for leaders, you need to get this book because it will help you create a roadmap for that level of care in your organization. But the back of the book says, over the past half century, the field of chaplaincy has come to a fork in the road. Many will recognize the well-traveled path of traditional chaplaincy. Others will follow the newer but clearly marked way to professional chaplaincy, a clinically trained, evidence-based discipline reflecting and serving the diverse expressions of spirituality in modern society. Until now, the chaplaincy in emergency medical services has been the terra incognita, the unknown land on the chaplaincy map, drawing on three decades of clinical chaplaincy practice and scholarship and original research. Russell Myers gives us the map, making the case for ambulance service chaplaincy, how to think about it and how to do it. And I think that's exceptionally profound and well, I think my intent with writing it was not, I, I wanted to tell stories, but I didn't want it to be a memoir. What I wanted was to build something that other people can follow. I mean, that's where the metaphor of the roadmap and the terra incognita was, you know, it's not based on my personality, but I wanted to be fairly objective. Like somebody else could pick this up and say, I could build this too. Here, this is the instruction manual. Um, so that was the intent with the, with the book. No, and that's and that's really good because I think we do need. I have to say, we do need an instruction manual. We do need that how-to guide. We do need that uh, that one hundred and one version of where to start all this off. Because some people think, you know, so what, what do I need this person running? You know, another person running around getting into our business, um, and you know, we have. I, I have a checklist of I should do this, this, and this because I'm the supervisor. I'm the leader. I'm the boss. Actually, you know, when the you-know-what hits the rotating, oscillating thing, the boss doesn't have time to worry about this because there are other things initially. And so, therefore, you guys being there on scene, ever-present, is actually a great bonus for everyone. Uh, your first uh, chapter, of course, is Terra Incognita, the unknown land on the chaplaincy map, Russ. What do you mean by that? I think what what I was trying to describe using using the terra incognita as kind of a metaphor for, um, you know, we're familiar with chaplaincy in a lot of other areas, but um, having it be um, really mapped out, if you will, organized, uh, described um, in 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 some detail by somebody who's been there, um, who who's walked up and down those those. Um, those the hills and in, in the valleys and in the curves and 
and encountered some some surprises along the way. Uh, I thought here's an opportunity to to describe it, so so others who follow will will have something that they can look at and say, does the does the the map match the territory? Um, am I able to find my way through this? Uh, so I'm um, in a way wanted to function as sort of a guide. So that kind of brings us on to to why you guys do what you do, and and I think you actually nicely summed up the sound bites in your introductions. But uh, uh, you know, Gwen and Nikki, you you have joined Russ in this noble um, endeavor, with particularly with a liner. Um, what motivates you to do what you do? You know, my I can't separate separate out my professional desire from my ministerial identity. Um, For me, it's really deeply rooted in my faith. And so I am an Anglican priest, an Episcopal priest in the U.S. And um, for me, it's all about love. It's about how can I bring some light, some life, some love into the world. And I am able to do that in these situations by just showing up, by we call it in chaplaincy, a ministry of presence, by walking alongside people who are struggling to be there with them so that they feel like they're not finding their way through the dark alone. Um, And so for me, being in these difficult moments with our first responders is a way that I can bring that love to the world, to, to help improve the world, to, to hopefully build it into something that my children will, will want to live in, in the coming years. Um, and, and so, you know, more practically speaking, it affects all of us. This is um, a very important realm. Anybody who's ever had to call 911 knows that you want those folks to be in good shape. You want them to be able to bring their A game every time they show up at a doorstep. Um, and so I, I guess the sort of selfish interest there is that we need our public safety folks to be supported. We need them to be whole. We need them to be able to have experience before burning out. Um, if, you know, I don't know, I think Russ can speak to the average length of an EMS career, but it's not as long as you would think. Um, and it's because of that chronic stress over time that folks decide that this this is not a field to stay in. Um, but those experienced people are really bringing something important to the public. And so the combination of this desire to, to shine the light of God in the world and also to very um, practically enable them to do these jobs, that's what my interest is. I, th- I think before I, I bring you in, Nikki, I think there's an interesting analogy there between the body and the soul. Uh, you talked about the longevity of an EMS provider, right? And of course, the, the normal benchmark is hands up. And I do this in a conference every time I go somewhere to speak. Hands up if you remember the day your back went, right? That's normally the classic EMS sort of uh, question. But of course, there's another bit is, is hands up the day that you lost you know, the the will to do what you're doing because of what you've witnessed, what you've experienced, the pressure you've been under and the stress you've been under. And perhaps we can come back and discuss that. Um, but, but, but Nikki, I mean, same question to you, just your motivation first. Yeah. Well, actually listening to both you and Gwen speak right now, um, what came to mind was more of a story to get to the answer. But what I was recalling was back when I was working at the clinic, um, I was sitting with um, a 
relatively young um, woman who was forced into early retirement from the police department um, due to her, her experience of PTSD um, and the symptoms that she was experiencing and not being able to find her way back to health and recovery. And she was newly in our program and experiencing a lot of stress. And in this particular moment, um, some sort of interaction with one of the team members kind of got her fight and flight response gearing and she was more in kind of a fight mode. Her um, kind of go to um, protective defensive mode, right? And um, she was very upset and dysregulated and stormed into the room and was grabbing her bags and she was going to quit the program and she was going to leave. Um, and I followed her in and I just took a seat and I tried to make eye contact with her and I tried to um, just sit with her and see her and put some words to what I thought she was experiencing. And somehow in validating what I was seeing or actually hearing her, actually seeing her. She went from being really angry and upset and the sense of nobody understands me and this place isn't going to help me either to just breaking down in tears. Um, and she just said, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Um, and for her, she was really scared of her own suicidal ideation because her suicidal ideation had gotten really high because of the symptoms that she was experiencing. Um, and we just sat and we cried and she ended up being in our program and I, I maintaining a relationship with her individually for another year or two. And that's why I do this work is to come alongside people and remind them of their humanity um, to help them kind of break down their defenses and their shields to get back to the truth of who they are, um, to help them be seen and heard and taken care of um, and accompanied. I think accompaniment is a huge role of um, chaplaincy is to be with people and remind them of their worth. And all of our first responders, we ask them to go into crazy situations. We often hear like they're the ones who run into situations that other people back away from. So, so we ask them to lead with their protector parts. We ask them to lead with their fight. We ask them to lead with bravery and strength and to do hard things. And then Underneath all of that is them still being human. Um, and our humanity, our psyches, our souls, our spirits can only hold so much. And so to provide a space where they actually still get to feel their humanity, um, to have compassionate responses, to break down, to not be okay, and then to figure out how we can support them in that and heal them in that and bring wholeness and um, all those good things. It just, um, I don't know, it's at the heart of, who I am and what I want for them and kind of what Gwen just said, just at the heart of just loving people and wanting what's best for people. And this is one way to show that love. Thank you for saying that. And uh, before we carry on, we're just going to break for one second and have a word from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Welcome back. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, 
please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. I'm talking chaplaincy uh, with Nikki, uh, Gwen, and Russ. Russ, sort of taking another chapter out of your book, we talk about the what, and we've kind of really created the conditions in the last few minutes to talk about this. There's kind of the proactive part of the chaplaincy, and then there's the reactive. There's the prepping someone for going in to do stuff they're about to do, and then there's the when things aren't going well. And so proactively, what are you guys doing? What's your normal daily work routine, I guess, in terms of interacting, uh, dealing integrating with the workforce that you're working with? Well, one of the um, kind of metaphors or examples that comes to mind is for me, and and I realized that I had started this from the very beginning, um, not not knowing what I was doing in this job that Brian had had invited me into, um, is, you know, in the the Bible, in the New Testament, there's the parable of the, the sower and the seeds. And I think of the sower as just being kind of reckless, throwing seed everywhere. Like any any self-respecting farmer wouldn't throw seed on hard soil, but in the story, the, that's exactly what they do. And and I, I I think of that as one of the ways that we approach this job is we just kind of recklessly throw seeds everywhere, um, you know, trying to find out where the employees are and and go to those places to interact with them. So that could mean riding along on with an ambulance crew. It could mean sitting along with the dispatchers, uh, going to leadership meetings. Uh, length of service, uh, pinning of new employees, um, you know, and then it also includes after the critical incidents, we've developed some mechanisms for both human and electronic uh, notification of when crews have particularly difficult calls. And so then we can uh, intentionally, proactively reach out to those people. And and usually it takes the form of, you know, just as, to start out an acknowledgement you know, I, I don't know that a particular call has impacted somebody, you know, as we know, you know, two people can go on the same call and one of them says, well, that was hard. And the other one says, that was one of the hardest ones calls I've been on. Well, what makes the difference? You know, well, who knows? It's all human. Uh, sometimes it's something about the patient or the situation, you know, that reminds us of somebody that, that we know and care about. Um, so, so our initial outreach often will take the language of, I just want to acknowledge that you were on that call and that one has the potential at least of uh, being pretty stressful. So, you know, and then, and then pause. And sometimes people reply with, you know, thanks. I have what I need. I'm doing fine. Uh, sometimes it's like, I got some good support from my supervisor, my coworkers, my outside resources. Uh, sometimes is there going to be a critical incident debriefing I'd like to attend? So just something that occurred to me in, in terms of you are, establishing you know the, the the proactive side of it when we started it, i talked about you know my experience of the company commander the sergeant major on one side of the equation and the, the the chaplain on the other how does that work for you when you may you know even be a party to some knowledge that, that the management may act on adversely for example um how do you treat you know your relationship with the guys that you're dealing with and also, how do you treat that relationship with the leaders? Because hopefully this podcast is going to be listened to by not only the guys in the truck, but also the guys in the corner office. So I think at the heart of this, um, one thing that's really important to note is that we operate under an umbrella of confidentiality at all times. Um, and that is partially uh, an aspect of ministry, right? But it's also partially an aspect of this role um, that 
we, we focus on building relationships and you can't build relationships with people that are authentic and honest if they don't trust you. And so our folks have to know that what we hear is going to stay with us. Um, vice versa, you know, we're not going to, if we hear leadership talking about something, we're not going to bring that down to folks as gossip. But we are privy to conversations that people might not be getting on one side of leadership or, or down in the employee level. Um, and so there's a room for, there's room for contracting with folks there. You know, this sounds like an important concern. Would you mind if I brought this to XYZ leader? Um, and there's also a space for um, just being a person that can empathize with, with all of the different levels of leadership. Every, every different level of an employee has its challenges and its benefits, right? Um, and I, I know there are certain levels that they're getting it from, from two sides and they don't have a safe place to bring their concerns. And the cool thing about chaplaincy is that we're a little bit removed from that existing command structure, right? It's, it's kind of got that military structure and we don't answer to people the same way that a crew answers to a supervisor, answers to a manager, answers to a director. We are able to, to flow in between all of those levels and just be with them and just hear them. We can bring things to people if we are given permission or if somebody requests that we advocate for them. But mostly that gives us a freedom to, to walk with people, all the, the different folks in this organization. And, and that's really neat. Nikki. Let's go to the sort of other side of we reacting to whether it's a critical incident, whether it's someone that's having some sort of you know crisis. Um, you know what what are your what's your advice? What's your role? And what's your advice? And how would you play through that those scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, Russ is very um, frequently quoted, or maybe it's even in the book, is saying, um, and I don't know if this was your words, Russ, or if you took it from somewhere else, but the time of crisis is not the time to be shaking hands, right? Um, so once we've kind of established, hopefully, as much as possible, that kind of proactive relationship, then when when the storm comes, whatever the storm might be, right, whether or not the storm is a a critical call, whether or not it's um, just the accumulation of stress, whether or not it's a personal crisis, perhaps a death in a family or a relational crisis, um, something that someone's struggling with. Hopefully, we've already established enough of a relationship or a rapport, either individually or as a group, that employees feel um, comfortable reaching out. And that can look like a, a lot of different things. Um, Recently, I had a dispatcher just automatically after a series of two bad calls in one night just text me because we had an established relationship and she just wanted to reach out on her own behalf and say, hey, I just experienced these calls. I wanted you to know about it. And that provided the opportunity. So some of it is employees automatically reaching out. Russ um, mentioned some of the systems we have in place that flag what we have kind of done some research on that are more objectively speaking expressed as more difficult calls. And so there are certain things like pediatric code three arrests that our system flags as calls that we'll get kind of a rundown on and automatically try to reach out to those crews. We have um, a new system in place called our well-being liaison. And our well-being liaison is the point of contact for our on-duty supervisors so that if at any time um, 
during the middle of the night or during the day, one of our crews um, comes to them with a particularly um, stressful event. They have a point of contact to reach out to 24-7 and that well-being liaison, which is made up of the three of us and four of our other um, leaders who have kind of specialized in this area to provide immediate um, connections to resources. So whether or not that connection is to one of the chaplains, whether or not that connection is to one of our EAP providers, uh, we are, we're blessed to have some therapy dogs, um, kind of a variety of well-being resources. That's one of the ways we want to um, kind of reactively provide support. And um, so I, I would say, I guess the majority of our referrals are directly from supervisors, um, from employees on behalf of themselves. And then we're in the process of developing our peer support team, which is one of the ways that we're really hoping to provide more um, reactive care on an ongoing basis too, because we know that um, people like to and feel more comfortable and potentially more trustworthy speaking to their own about some of the situations and some of the issues that they're experiencing. Just going to do a quick plug for if you're listening to this podcast the week that it's published, also catch the edition of Inside EMS that's going out as a live webinar with uh, Chris Kelly, myself, and also our guests, uh, Dr. Ed Rock and Rhonda Kelly. And again, we're going to continue the theme about wellness and looking after our providers in that. So again, it's all part of the wellness package, but uh, do catch up with that. I am very partial to our telecommunicators, to our heroes in headsets. Um, they are the first first responders. Also, don't forget that next month, uh, the 10th to the 14th, is National uh, Telecommunicator Week. And so make sure that you pay attention to your telecommunicators because they get to the emergency and listen and witness the trauma first. And so I'm delighted that you guys have mentioned the the, t the telecommunicator, the call taker, the call handler, whatever you call them, because they're there first. They're the ones that I always talk about the CPR scenario, right? That in in the room there is the caller and the body, and on the other end of the person on the and on the other end of the line there is that call taker, and those are the three people in the world at that point, and so they play a massive part in bringing life back, and so you know and that means that they are also prone to stressful encounters because of that and because they, they are literally telling someone how to revive revive usually a loved one usually get someone that's familiar and so again you know don't don't forget your telecommunicators and i'm so glad that you mentioned them because they're they're a massive part of of intervention so don't forget telecommunicator week is coming up in april education offerings and things that you're doing gwen um talk to us about that yeah, so we um, one of the things that Russ started doing long ago was try to be a presence in our academy. So we have this week where we two weeks, two weeks, three weeks. Um, we have this time where we train our new employees, and um, we have a small well being presentation that takes place in conjunction with um, some of the the well being supervising staff. Um, and so the chaplains come and the well-being folks come and we talk a little bit about how important it is to think about your mental health, to take care of yourself preemptively. Um, I like to ask, what is it that gives you joy? What is it that gives you hope and peace in your life right now? Because when we are under stress, one of the fastest 
uh, easiest ways to regulate that is to get back to the things that make us feel like ourselves. But when we're under stress, a lot of times those are the things that we let go of first. And in EMS, we have long hours. Folks are working 12, 13 hour shifts. They are tired. They don't have access to great food when they're out in trucks. And so often when you come back from a long shift, the last thing you want to do is exercise, right? Or go out and take a hike in the woods. But those are the things that it's important to cultivate, maintaining a sense of who you really are and what what brings you peace and joy. Um, And so we talk a little bit about that. We talk about some of these resources like the therapy dogs, like our well-being liaison, like the peer support program. Um, And we talk a little bit about what it looks like when you're under stress. Like what are some of the signs in your body that you might notice um, because these things creep up on you. You you may be sleeping a little bit badly one night and then a couple of weeks later you're sleeping really badly, but you don't really notice it until you get to that point of really disrupted sleep. But if you could catch it a couple of weeks earlier and say, oh, I didn't sleep too well last night. Maybe I need to do a little bit more exercising today. Maybe I need to focus a little bit more on nutrition or meditation or connecting with a community that makes me feel whole. That is something that you can do to catch yourself before you get to the point of critical stress. So we've been doing some educating around that. Um, I love that you uh, brought up the importance of our communications folks. We, I think that this may be pretty common across the board. We notice that it's very easy to forget your comm center because they're tucked away in an office. They're not the folks that people are seeing the faces of out on the street. Um, And so we were really intentional about trying to cultivate a time to be with them. And so Nikki and I, this last month, participated in their mandatory education program, where we brought some of these well-being tips, some of these resources to them, and then just chatted, got to know a couple of people, because as we've said again and again, it's relationship building that's really key to this work. And if we don't see them because they work an overnight shift and we don't have a chance to be there, then how are they going to trust us in the moment of crisis? So that has been really instrumental for us. Two things. Back at you. I I smiled when you said hike because I do my best thinking uh, whilst hiking. I do my best recovering whilst hiking. And if you're out there listening and you want me to take your exercise for you, visit my YouTube channel, UK Rob L Hikes. I've got 130 curated hikes around Southern California and Nevada. So uh, that's, that's my wellness plug for you. Also, coming back, I can't keep away from our heroes and headsets, but if you ever ever have a cardiac arrest survivor reunion, leaders, watch what happens when the survivor meets, hopefully, all of those people involved in the chain of survival. And it's actually not about the, the paramedic that arrives on scene and the survivor. You watch the relationship and the interaction between the caller and the call taker. It is absolutely remarkable and uh, it brings it brought a tear to my eye every time i watched that because they realized that they shared this thing that no one else in the world have has ever done and uh, and of course we also have to care for the caller too and uh, um i interviewed christian flannery uh, aka lady glockenfleck in a, a while ago and of course she talks about the fact that we also need to think about looking after that person that made the call because they're the ones in the room dealing with the trauma and, and, and the issues. And so I, I throw that one in as well, because that could be an extra, you know, outreach for, for, for particularly chaplaincy because those people have been traumatized by what just played out in front of them as well. Um, so yes, that, that's, that's, that's my, uh, my missive of the day. Uh, pay attention. Finally, Russ, uh, if someone is thinking about introducing a chaplain, what is your sage advice? I think my, my first uh, 
first suggestion would be to, to be real deliberate about it and to give it a lot of thought as to what the goal would be. Um, you know, make sure that the senior leaders are all on board and, and all that the whole organization understands why we're doing this. Um, otherwise, you risk undermining the program. If somebody has an idea of something and it's not really very clearly understood, um, it can get really undermined and, and, and collapse under its own weight. Um, I'd say set a realistic budget. Um, I don't, I, you know, I know that there are a lot of really good uh, chaplains who do a lot of work for on a volunteer basis. And in some communities, that's the only way it's going to happen. Um, if you're thinking about a paid position to, I, I would encourage uh, leaders who are working on budgets to, to look out a couple of years and make sure that the, that the funds are going to be there. Uh, just because if you get what you pay for, you know, in, in terms of a, a clinically trained professional chaplain, um, we're in we're in the range of, of you know any other professional that needs to be paid well. Um, not to advocate for high salaries, but just de, you know adequate. And actually, I'm going to come back to my body and spirit uh, analogy. Of course, in ambulance services, we have spent a lot of money on the self-raising stretcher, the patient lifting inflatable cushion devices to solve that back injury you guys are you know that investment in ensuring that we we keep our soul in good working order and so there is there you know there is that link there and i commend people to you know take heed to your 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 words there russ yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it. I would think of it as an investment, not a, not as an expense. We've been talking a lot about recently about kind of moral injury in EMS, um, but specifically about Gwen and I were even just talking about this morning about um, kind of the, uh, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar, Rob, with Reverend Mark Lawson, a chaplain out no. of Australia who's done some work with Russ and some um, research on moral injury in EMS. He's part of the fire service and a paramedic in Australia. And um, in his research, he's really kind of indicated that while we can't prevent trauma from happening in EMS, right, that we can't prevent the fact that people are going to be exposed to trauma, kind of the secondary trauma of having organizations fall short in their commitments to support providers when that happens is a place that we have some room to grow and some place where we can kind of intervene. And he's kind of called that a um, an unconscious social contract, that the social contract is our employees show up and commit to doing these jobs that are highly stressed and in stressful environments. And then our social contract is we're going to support you and your wellness and your well-being, body, mind, and and spirit as you do so. And I think our role is a lot in helping people uphold that social contract. How are we, what are we as an organization doing to ensure our end of the bargain? So how are you incorporating that into your organization? You know, we've started, I think, in some of the education that Gwen was just talking about, we've just started kind of naming that and being transparent with that when we talk to employees at our academies, when we talk to them in a mandatory education. At least that's something that I know I've been doing. Has been I've been naming that social contract. I've been naming, here you guys are showing up to do these these jobs in difficult, high-stress situations. We know that a part of that is going to be putting yourself in potentially um, or exposing yourself to potentially traumatic incidents and that as a byproduct, you might experience some of these things. And in doing so, we're committing to do A, B, and C. 
And by naming it from the get-go, by being transparent about it, by telling our employees that that's um, what we're committing to, it kind of holds us accountable so that when those bad things happen, they have the chaplains to reach out to or leadership to reach out to or EAP to reach out to to say, hey, I, you said that if I do this job and this happens to me, you're going to show up for me and support my mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health. I'm calling you on it. Uh, so I think that's one of the major things we're trying to do right now is as we shift our environment is being really vocal about our side of the bargain, so to speak, and then inviting them to hold us accountable when such things happen. And so are you seeing that? Is it happening? I, I, I'm not asking you to provide, you know, Tegman-esque data and measurement, but is it is it occurring? Yes and no. <laughs> I definitely think we're having more and more employees reach out and say, hey, I need, um, this isn't working for me, I'm in trouble. Um, whether or not that's um, asking for more resources in the moment, saying I can't, I can't go on another call right now, I need some help, and figuring out a way to do a debriefing over Teams right then in the moment to provide some resources so that they can then make a wise-minded decision about whether or not they finish their shift or at least don't go home by themselves without a plan in place. Or if it's saying on a long-term basis, actually, I need to take a leave of absence. Like, I, I, this is not getting better. I'm not okay. I need to step away and to get some more long-term resources. And um, we can always do better. I definitely think there's still some holes in the system. But I want to call you out on the and no bit of that conversation as well, because is the and no, because there's still a stigma about coming forward. So I think uh, in Alina particularly, they've done a really good job of trying to address that stigma. And the leaders have been fantastic in saying, like, we recognize the difficulty of this job, the trauma that you're facing, and we do want you to come forward and support you. That is easier said than done in a lot of regards, I think, um, for practical reasons for the reason that culture is slow to shift. Um, one of the biggest things that sometimes impacts what Nikki was just talking about, this moral injury piece, is that organizations are slow. They're big and slow. Um, and to use an example, we've been working on our peer support team for several years now, and we're just not entirely off the ground. And there's been incremental progress, but it's just a really slow going thing. And so we have given this message that we're working on peer support. And People who are working every day don't see the behind the scenes, right? Like they don't see that Nikki and I having meetings and doing trainings and the conversations that we're having with legal and with other organizations that are doing peer support. What they see is that, hey, they said three years ago we were going to have peer support and we don't have peer support yet. And at times that feels like a betrayal. And it's an inevitable thing, right? Because they can't be aware of everything that's going on in the organization. And so one of the things that we're working on is more transparency and saying we recognize that there's an issue here. There's a disconnect. There's something that isn't working. And we are having conversations about it. We are working on this problem. So we're letting them know that it's something that we're addressing. Um, it's not going to necessarily speed up the process, but at least that helps them feel heard. And like we haven't just taken their complaint and shoved it in a drawer somewhere. You used, you started this, Gwen, with the word hike, but this is like hiking, right? I'm not the fastest hiker in the world, but at least I'm hiking. You guys are actually out there hiking. You're doing it. You started, you know, you've taken that great journey, but with one small step and, you know, eventually you'll pick up the speed. It's been amazing talking to you all. And don't forget, you can read Russ's book, Because We Care, a handbook for chaplaincy in emergency medical services. The link for that is in the show notes. So uh, please either download a copy or indeed uh, order a copy. 
for the moment. And I hope to have you all back for another chat uh, sometime soon. But uh, Nikki, Gwen and Russ, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And if you want to get in touch with those folk, we'll put that also in the show notes. Uh, but for the moment, uh, this has been another edition of EMS One Stop. Uh, we're on the on the edge of, or indeed in the middle of, if you listen to this, uh, Lexapol Wellness Week. Uh, there's a whole range of programs, presentations that you can listen to to help you and yours along. So for the moment, uh, I've been Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now. Bye.